At Giant Eagle, you may have spotted the Stacker. With uncanny MyPerks ability, she stacks up the perks to choose either dollars off or up to 20% off her entire grocery bill. The Stacker, stacking up huge savings with MyPerks. Find your MyPersonality and transform your shopping into free gas and groceries. Full details at GiantEagle.com slash MyPerks. Perks cannot be earned or redeemed on select items. Restrictions apply. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Here's maybe a weird question for you. What do you think it would be like to be around for your own funeral? I know, I know, but maybe, maybe it's something you've wondered about at some point. You get to see your friends and family gather around and share some memories of you. You get to absorb all the love they have for you and know that you won't be forgotten. You get to find out whether, like, oh, so-and-so showed up. Oh, I didn't think they'd show up, but oh, there they are. That's kind of the premise of Elizabeth Acevedo's new book. It's called Family Lore. Now, if you don't know Elizabeth, she's an award-winning author. Her, her book, The Poet X, won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. She's also a slam poet champion. This is the first time Elizabeth has written a book uh, for, let's call them, grown-up readers. Uh, family Lore isn't just about a living wake. It's about a close-knit Dominican-American family, specifically first and second generation women who live in and around New York City. And yeah, I mean, the plot is kind of the family's matriarch Flora announces out of the blue that she wants to hold a living wake for herself. But here's the catch. Like most of the other women in her family, Flora has this magical gift and hers is that she knows when someone is going to die. So yeah, that that changes the stakes a little bit. Elizabeth Acevedo joined me to talk about family lore. As we were getting going, she was telling me why she was interested in the idea of a living wake. And she said this one, one little thing that I just had to follow up on. Anyway, here's our conversation. Did you tell me that you have been thinking about your funeral since you were a kid? <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. I don't know what that means about me. You're the first person I've admitted this to, Tom. But I, I would just like lay at night and be like, who would come? And what would they say? And, you know, what would people wear? So it it didn't feel too unusual for me to to find ways into this novel. <laughs> I understand that, though. You know, there is something nice about it, you know. There is something. I heard the great comedian John Mulaney talk about that one time. The idea yeah. that he was he loves attention so much that when he found out he wouldn't be able to be at the one place he gets the most attention, <laughs> it was heartbreaking for him. <laughs> no, I think that's entirely it. And when you're a kid and you're like, no one loves me, you're like, however, if I had a funeral, I bet you <laughs> they would all declare love. <laughs> um, before we keep going with the plot here, I, I do want to talk sort of about the 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 shift for you in, in what you're writing about. I mean, as I mentioned in the introduction, that you're, you're really well known now for novels for young adults. This is uh, your first one for for grown ups. We'll say fully grown up adults and for older readers. Was that an intentional shift on your part? It was intentional. I mean, this story had been brewing for a while. Maybe not the living wake aspect, but wanting to talk about um, you know these interconnected women. And I just knew that while my young adult work kind of forces me to look backward at who I was as my younger self. This book had a a reaching forward that just was going to have to be for a more mature audience. And there would be subject matter that was for a more mature audience. And, and I didn't want to keep running from this, this book. It felt like it was time. 
like themes about mortality and and family and and secrets, these things are more mm-hmm. easily accessible to you when you don't have to think about the sensibilities of younger readers. Yeah, and especially when we're talking about secrets or shame or or um, generations of silence and how we learn silence and what it does to our ability to n- not necessarily feel known by the people who love us most. Like it just felt like um, these were themes that were really layered and um, far reaching. And uh, the pacing I think was gonna have to be a little slower. The, the how intricately I wanted to look at how shame is passed down. I, I knew might not work for a 13 year old who maybe doesn't have the kinds of life experiences to, to bring to the text to really allow for the full richness of what I hope would come with this story. At the heart of your book are four older sisters. Can you tell me about them? Yeah, so we have um, Matilde, who is the eldest and doesn't have any magic that she knows of. Um, And then we have Flor, who is the sister that can see death. We have Pastora, who is known as not having any silk on her tongue. um, And she can tell whether or not you are... Um, telling the truth about something. And then much younger, 20 years younger than almost all of these is Camila, who is um, the youngest and the often forgotten and and a, a, an herbalist, right? And I, I give their little bits of magic because I think it um, it was fun to come up with those quirks, but, but they're basically these four women who all leave the Dominican Republic in varying moments um, and have to make a way for themselves uh, as they're also dealing with the kinds of women that they are and are not and how they do or don't love each other and how they were each mothered differently by by their parent. Was there something interesting to you about about writing uh, um, writing these older women? These are senior women? So I come from a pretty large family. My mom is one of 15 and she's one of nine sisters. And I just remember always being amazed by the different sisters' stories um, and now as they're getting older, you know, they're less myth. Like when I was little, it was like this aunt once did this and this aunt once did that. And now they just feel a lot more human. Um, and I realized that the the issues that I write about when I'm writing for teens or when I'm writing poetry for, um, you know, for more contemporary audience are the are the not so far from some of the issues that my my aunts and my mom at 70 are dealing with and and especially if we're talking about feeling loved and how to love and like you know I still have life left but but I feel like maybe not a lot what do I do with the time I have left we feel like when people get older the credits start to roll and there is this sense of closure and every single loose end in their life has mm-hmm. been tied up but you're saying that you you you've started to realize now that your family has become sort of less mythical and more real to you that those feelings don't really go away oh my god tom you said that way better than i could but yes exactly <laughs> i'm very affordable by the way if you need me. <laughs> come on tour with me <laughs> no i that's precisely it you know i think you you think of someone in their 70s and you imagine ah they've lived a lot of life they're you know probably settled but but it was amazing to watch women in my family specifically be at odds with where they thought they should be and, and how familiar that felt 
you know, post-graduating college and you're kind of like, oh, I think I'm supposed to be here or, you know, I became a parent this year. And I remember thinking like, oh, like as a mom, this is what I should know or who I should be like that. We're always facing who we think we should be um, and that that doesn't necessarily stop at 70. And if you're 70 and you're in a terrible marriage and you don't know how to get out, but you're like, but none of my sisters are are unmarried and none of them are divorced. And like I should like that, that persistence of where you should be, I don't think ends necessarily because you entered, you know, the latter half of your life. Um, and what does it mean to to think through what it would look like for someone who is staunchly entrenched in the way things should be to, to kind of burst forth from that? And I think each of the characters is in a moment in time where they have to reconsider who they have been and who they need to become regardless of the age. We'll be right back. I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We're the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. This narrative goes back and forth in time and in, and in location, too. It goes in between in time and also between the U.S. and the, and the Dominican Republic. And, you know, one thing that um, in, in this book and I think throughout a lot of your writing is um, you're very specific in the way you, you write about your culture. You know, the way you talk about idioms, the way you talk about magic, the way you talk about superstition, the t- way you talk about folklore. Um, it, I read this story and I, I know you've told it before, but I, I read it when I was getting ready for this interview and I just really loved it. Um, it's a story about when you were a teacher um, and I think you discovered like the power of either specificity or the power of like being able to read, uh, see yourself in a book or see yourself in a story and, and what that can do in terms of getting a child interested in reading. Do you know the story I'm talking about? I think so. I was um, a school teacher at a, a school that was predominantly um, Latinx, 70 percent. I was the first teacher of Latinx descent to be um, a classroom teacher and not teaching an elective like um, Spanish or or gym, but teaching a core subject. I was teaching English language arts. Um, and a lot of my students weren't at grade level, which um, is, you know, just the tragedy of, of you know, the American school system. We, we, we fail our, our public schools often. And I had this one student who was amazing um and kind of a smart ass and always had something slick to say and I absolutely adored her and she hated silent reading time she wanted to do anything but but silent reading time and I remember one day just asking her like what can I get you because I'd given her everything that was exciting and I'll date you know my time then but it was Divergent and Hunger Games and Twilight and all of these books that were becoming movies that all of the other kids seemed to love and this kiddo just looked at me and was like, you know, none of these books are about us. They don't sound like us. They don't, you know, and she didn't explicitly say like, they're not from the same culture. They're not from the same race, but just this 
Like, I don't care about sparkly vampires, right? I don't care about kids killing each other for food. Like, that's not what I'm, it's not what I want to read. Um, and I remember going out and like buying Walter Dean Myers and Julia Alvarez and Sandra Cisneros and just these authors that I thought might speak to this experience that she had mentioned being interested in. And when I tell you that within two weeks, she had read this entire pile of books that I had bought for her. You know, it it was amazing that this young person, it wasn't that she wasn't interested in reading. It was that the books that I had been giving her did not reflect the kind of reading she wanted to do. So does that inform your writing? I think it informed the early work that be, at that point, I didn't think of myself as, as, a, as a novelist. I was staunchly a poet and I didn't think I had the ability or wherewithal to write prose or to write fiction. And I think that young person looking at me and just saying, where are the books about us echoed how I had felt when I was her age. And I realized, you know, I, I've been waiting for someone else to write the stories and maybe it's me. And so I, I think it launched me in a different way towards a kind of writing I was too afraid to do. Speaking of your work as a, a poet, I was hoping you might be able to read uh, a little bit from Family Lord. Did someone give you a, a passage to, for we were hoping you might read? They gave me a really short paragraph that I'd be happy to read. If you don't mind, whenever you get a chance. We learned in the shadows when boys who should not did, when girls we loved loved us back. We learned in the big beds of other people's parents. On a rare occasion, we might have even learned in the sunlight. We might have learned in the quiet. We learned as we listened to the still, to the loudness of our hearts. But we did not learn from our mothers. Elizabeth Acevedo, the award-winning author, reading from her new book, Family Lore. So I, I want to I talk a little bit in, in just a second about sort of how you write about um, female sexuality, how you, how you write about desire, how you write about, you know, uh, how we learn about sex, which I think you can really hear in, in that passage. But just the way that it's, it's written, um, how do I put this now? Like it, I could hear in the writing your background in poetry. Like did your, did your background in poetry help you tell the story? I think so. I mean, you mentioned earlier that it's it's nonlinear and it um, jumps around in time and there are multiple perspectives. And I think my poet sensibility um, feels comfortable not necessarily having to follow um, some of the strictures of fiction that I'm told are the easiest ways for us to read. And and I think that poetry really does help with that, but just on the level of rhythm, right? I think if you're a fiction writer and you're not studying prosody, you know, there's so much, there's so many tools at your disposal that you're not, you're not using, right? And not learning how to use, but music is really important to me, even in prose. Um, and I think that comes through in, in all of my texts that I, I'm editing with my eye, but I'm also editing with my ear. Is, is prosody like the rhythm of, of language? It is. It's it's literally meter. Just how we learn to to listen for for different kinds of meter and um, for when a line needs to break, when we need a hard word, when we need um, enchantment. Just all the ways that we hear music um, on a certain meter and when breaking that or continuing that either helps a reader keep going or stops a reader in their tracks. I'm so happy you got. I got to bring you back to your language arts teacher roots there. By the way. <laughs> 
Awesome. I'm always so glad to, to you know, define terms. <laughs> well, my mother is a, a retired English teacher, so I'm going to get a phone call from her saying, how did you not know that, Tom? What's wrong with you, uh, for God's sake? I'm gonna... <laughs> well, I didn't learn about prosody until much later, and so uh, I think she'll forgive you. <laughs> I, I hope so. Um, the, the passage, we, as I mentioned, you know, and alluded to this, but, you know, one of the things in, in, in this book is it, it is really, you know, um, geez, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the right language here. Like candid or or frank discussions and descriptions of again, like sexuality and desire from a woman's perspective. It's a big part of the book. Talk to me a little bit about that. About about wanting to portray that. About m- making sure you got that part right. I I think that the ways that some women, particularly if you're from cultures where um, conservatism of of dress or of desire or of of sex are shielded and it's not discussed, um, learn about sex uh, often brings a lot of shame with it. And so in this book, it, it is about each of these women who have these magical abilities that are located in their bodies that are are ones that they feel um, intrinsically in their guts or in their throats or like in some capacity. Um, it's all about the magic of the body and how we celebrate the magic of the body. And for me, kind of dispelling the ways that that's, you know, conversations around sex are had and what makes something a proper book or proper to talk about. Um, And just saying, I'm going to put it plainly on the page so that questions of desire are, are not questioned, at least not when it comes to the novel, right? When, when there is want you, it is clearly stated or it is um, identified on the page. And it's, it's not something that I have seen often in Dominican literature. I think we, can be a culture that is very prim and proper when it comes to that, um, to the disservice, I think, of a lot of our our women who who may not always learn about it in in ways that um, are helpful. And they learn about it, I think, the ways that, you know, you learn about something when there's no um, no guidance. Right. It's just um, fumbling or, or figuring it out or with a deep sense of this is wrong that mm-hmm. I think can take so long to to shed and so for me maybe this book was a lot about you know hoping generations of, of future young women who are raised in that ways I have at least a text that um is thinking through you know the push and pull of you know desire and, and that it's okay to discuss openly you I've, I've even heard that you you even sort of felt some of the prim and properness that when you put out this book, you sort of had this realization <laughs> that you're, that the older members of your family, even they might read this. Oh, I'm still feeling that way. The book will get translated <laughs> in November. And I'm like, how do I just not tell them that it's been translated? <laughs> how do I? Maybe not? they won't know. <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they don't have to find out. They don't have to read I think this. Not. I think so. That's that, you know, that's where I'm I'm sticking to. But no, I think for sure I it um there's a propriety that I know I'm going to have to face. And maybe this book was my pushing myself to just face it, right? You can't run from from the beliefs you have because an older generation might want you to talk about it differently or not talk about it at all. One of the other things that comes up in this book is how even with very intimate and very close family members and very intimate and close family relationships, you still don't know. You still never know what secrets and things that people are, are grappling with. Mm-hmm. Is there 
I, I, I know this is not your young adult books, so I know there's not as much of a, a concern about lessons here. But I did wonder if there's a lesson in there about how, how, how we treat one another. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think when I set out with this project, I was curious about the idea of ensemble truth telling. Like when we want to know the truth of a family, when we say, tell me the family history, that if you have multiple members who think they know each other, but there's so many gaps in what they've told each other or how they um, understand each other, the, the truth isn't as smooth or as easy as we imagine when we try to hold the concept of like a familial unit. Um, and, and that was really important to me that we can contain so many parts of ourselves and we we may not always be empathetic because we think we know, right? We make up stories of who people are. And then when we ask them or when we just stop and listen, we realize, oh, there's something here that is at odds with who I imagined you to be. And I think that opening up of finding something new about someone maybe allows us to open up and share something new of ourselves. And so um, there's there's a lot of secrets and a lot of silence on the page, a lot of moments where a character will say something for an entire two paragraphs and then it ends with, but she didn't say that, right? So this idea of how we hold so much back um, and how that doesn't allow people in in the ways we imagine. Uh, was something that I was really trying to to think through. And then the moments where characters can break through and really see each other, mm. um, what what does that closeness do and how do we now have a part of the story we didn't have before? That's, that's a, so beautiful. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. It's so great to talk with you, Tom. Thanks for these wonderful questions. Before we go, I got one more. We always play a okay. song. We always play a song at the end of our, of our interviews. And um, given that presumably neither of us will be around at our, our funerals, I was wondering if you could pick a song to play after our interview with you that you might want to hear at yours. I know it's a bit morbid, but given that you told me you've thought about your funeral <laughs> since you were a little kid, I might ask it anyway. Well, I want a celebration. And this this question, I mean, the first song that comes to mind is um, We Got Love by Tiana Taylor, which I listen to a lot while writing this book. Um, so that would be the song I would want played. We'll, we'll play it afterwards. Uh, thanks so much for making the time and congratulations on the book. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tom. It was a pleasure. I got house in the carriage, yeah. I got black love and marriage, yeah. They gon' say you can't have it, but I might don't kill the messenger. We gon' break the stigma up. Hucks the boost, turn the Obamas. It ain't about where you been, where you from, what you got. It's all about love. Self love is the best love. When you gon' take that wristband off, that petite party bent over. Don't need makeup to dress you up. I gave birth on the bathroom floor. Just me, Iman, and headphone calls. Don't let this life defeat you. I hope this message reach you. Throw your hands up. Play catch with the hundreds. Love is the new money. I'm just chilling with the homies. Home is where the heart is. Throw your hands up. Play catch with the hundreds. Love is the new money. I'm just chilling with the homies. Home is where the heart is. That's We Got Love by Tiana Taylor, Elizabeth Acevedo's first song on her imaginary playlist for her wake. Before that, my conversation with Elizabeth, her new book, Family Lore, is out now. That's it for this uh, episode of Q. Um, Marie Clements is the other podcast episode. You might have seen that in your feed. And uh, if you have some time today, I do recommend you go check that out because... 
It's ostensibly about Marie Clement's new show, Bones of Crows, which is, uh, again, ostensibly about the trauma of residential schools in, in Canada. But it's about so much more than that. Like, Marie Clements talks about how what it was like to work on that show and look around and see that pretty much all the cast and crew had someone in their lives who was forced to attend residential school. It made her think about her own relationship with her own mom and the secrets that we keep from our families and and, and the trauma that we go through and how much we share our share with our families and really at the end of the conversation and 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 she she talked about this making the show about one of the greatest atrocities in canadian history really gave her hope so go check that out wherever you get your podcast if you got if you got a couple minutes all right we'll see you soon later on For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.